Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. And this is a really special podcast. It's actually our 25th episode, Can You Believe It?, So I'd like to thank everybody who's listened over the past few months. I've been absolutely blown away by your support and feedback. Please do keep it coming and keep on spreading the word. Every week I hear from different HR uprisers from different parts of the world about what they're up to. And it's just fantastic that when I hear that a topic we've covered has been interesting or it's resonated with them. So this week is a particularly exciting episode. It's actually our Silver Jubilee episode, number 25 no less. And to celebrate this, I'm completely delighted, I'm probably embarrassing this guest now, to welcome a very special guest. This person is one of HR's greatest influencers. He is a senior HR professional and he's been involved in corporate roles for approximately 30 years without making him sound too old. You wouldn't know that. He's a highly influential member of SHRM, which is the American version of the CIPD for my UK listeners. He's a best-selling author of the book HR on Purpose, which I thoroughly recommend. It's also a really great listen on Audible. He is, without a shadow of a doubt, a member of the HR Twitterati with more than 43,000 followers, yet totally approachable, warm and supportive, as you can tell, because he has agreed to come on the HR Uprising with little old me. So have you guessed who it is yet? To steal one of his expressions, I am totally geeked to welcome Steve Brown onto the HR Uprising. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Lucinda. How how are things in the UK? Uh, They're a bit damp and uh, a bit miserable, and I'm wearing my warmest clothes because it's a bit... Well, it's Friday afternoon here for us, so you've got a bit more of the day to go, haven't you? I do. I do. It's about midday here. Yes. Okay, so a bit more time. You've got to wait till the weekend. Weekend starts for me shortly. So in terms of... um, I mean, we chatted before, haven't we? And I thought it would be really good... You know, when I said about the HR uprising, one of our goals is uh, just to help people be seen as strategic, having purpose, adding business value. And you wrote a book called HR on Purpose, which is so relevant there. I wondered if you wanted to share a bit about your ethos in relation to the HR profession. Um, I believe in HR and I don't know that a lot of people do. I think a lot of people practice HR like it's a job. It's a job as in any other job, but I think for any profession, there should be someone or a group of people that really believe in the industry, believe in the purpose, believe in the relevancy for it for organizations, because when it happens, organizations thrive. If organizations only say we have it to exist, to comply, to constrict, yes, that happens and it's functional and it can work, but it's a terrible place. (laughs) And I think people deserve more. And I think human resources people need to have more of a human-centric approach naturally, not programmatically. You know, know, we we get the chance to work with people, and that's just awesome. I can't, you know, I love being around humans every day. 
And I wish if that was more of the ethos. Now, that's not our history. You know, it, it came up because like any job, most jobs exist because a problem happened and they created a job. That happened, you know, a century ago. We need to get to moving it forward. So I'd like to see HR actually embrace who they are, own who they are, and show people how wonderful it is as a field. And it's being, you're actually sort of saying it's actually being motivated by people, genuinely interested in people. I think you talked about the idea of HR person being 60% psychologist, 20% compliance, 20% analyst or something, wasn't it, um, in your book. And I, and I thought that was a really interesting point because sometimes we can get pinned behind desks um, and disconnected uh, in terms of trying to do things. So you're really saying reach out and and be personable, be, be engaged in the organization. Absolutely. The thing that is really funny is your desk doesn't care if you're there. <laughs> it does not. And yet we we feel so tied to that as if we're chained to it. Uh, whether Whatever the workspace is, whether it's um, digital, virtual, uh, literal, we think that our things are more important than the people that do the work around us. HR would be far more relevant if we could enable others to perform. Yeah, yeah. Because if we can be that go-between for them to help them thrive and do what they do, the organization over time succeeds. But it takes little bits at a time. And your desk can't do that. A spreadsheet can't do that. Now, I'm not discounting them. There are great functional parts of the job that you need to do. Anytime we have this kind of conversation, Lucinda, people go, oh, you're against this. No, I think HR is a continuum. There's, to me, the component is hugely human with some functional parts aside. If you can handle those and knock those out and pay more attention on the human side, you'll enjoy the field much more. There are so many different types of HR, aren't there, though, as well? So perhaps it's, uh, I suppose maybe it is about, well, I suppose it depends whether you're um, in a standalone HR role where you really have to have multiple hats or if you're in a larger team where you can specialise in an area that lends itself. So as you, you know, I was in learning and development, which is bandied into HR, but actually doesn't really feel like HR because I always thought we got to do the fun stuff and uh, a lot of the HR people got to do the really hard stuff. So um, that was a very much a people angle on it. But that was in a large organisation. If you're in, an, in a smaller organisation, you've got to do all of it. And it must be hard to let go of the difficult stuff um, and maybe even want to hide away sometimes when, you know, from that sort of thing. It must be quite tricky. You've done a lot of standalone HR roles, haven't you? Yes. The majority of HR roles I've had were I was the department of one, we call yeah. it here. And so you do, you have different hats, but I think that's very invigorating. It can be overwhelming. It can be daunting and go, oh my gosh, now I have to do this. A lot of HR to me is how you approach life. I know that sounds very philosophical, but if you're a positive person going in, instead of saying, oh no, I have all this, you say, oh, I have all this. This is great. This is what lies ahead of me. This is what is in front of me. And yes, it should be challenging because now it has some you know, gravitas to it. It's not just fluffy junky stuff. So when you are a department of one or two or three, which is the vast majority of HR departments, Mm -hmm. really across the globe, um, you do what you can instead of worrying about what you don't do. When I first grew up in HR, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm not getting all this done. And I ended up getting little less and less and less done. When I said, no, I'm going to handle this. And then add this, and then add this, and then add this. I could take on immense amounts of work. But when I focused on everything that HR does, for instance, learning and development. And if I'm in a small company, 
I had to farm that out. Mm -hmm. I had to have people go to events. I couldn't do internal training or internal development, but I had to make sure development occurred. So I would say, hey, I'm going to send you to a class, Mike, to get professional development. Instead of saying, I need to have that as a hat, my hat was using resources outside of my purview in order for it to happen. I mean, that's, um, I think, in many ways, shows a lot about your general philosophy that, that I perceive from the outside, though, as well, because um, you've there's a strategic element as in taking a step back and seeing what needs to be done, but you do it through collaboration. It seems that everything you, you do is very much about connecting people and reaching out. And again, if you're an HR department of one, you do have to reach out and, and make those networks, which I think we'll go into that. We'll definitely go into, well, I want to go into that definitely because I see you're amazing at that. Um, the, 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 what I wanted to ask though before is how did you get into HR? What, how, what was your very first job? I wasn't sure. How, did you fall into it or did you, how did you get into it? No, I've been in HR on purpose forever. Right. Uh, when I first came out of school, I went to a, a very large company, Procter & Gamble. Yep. I've been gone long enough. They can't find me. Uh, <laughs> And I took on a recruiter role. I was an internal recruiter and I had a large client base of like 30 different departments that I had to fill their needs. And at that time, HR was sent or recruiting was centralized in Procter. Now it's decentralized. So each department has a person. So I have, you know, 30 different departments uh, ranging from very administrative to accounting to technical things. And I wanted to move up and I, get, I liked recruiting, but I was like, okay, is there anything else? Because I knew there was. And their career path was not my career path. Right. And uh, they told me that I had to go from a support function to a line function. So work like HR in a plant. And I was young, naive, and uh, bullheaded. <laughs> and I said, I'm not going to go into manufacturing. I went to college or, you know, or university. I went to university and I... That's not why I went. And again, young, stupid, naive. And uh, I said, so I got to leave. So I left. And then for the next uh, 12 years, I was in manufacturing jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So once I learned uh, the blue collar, the hands-on, the uh, very hardworking men and women that I worked with, I had a much better appreciation of people. Okay. And then I did proper respect then for I the did. end user for the yeah. Absolutely. The the white color people, wonderful. You know, professional people love them, but not nearly as candid, not nearly as forthright, not nearly as honest. Mm. It was all posturing and politics and movement, and in manufacturing, it's raw, uh, which I liked. Mm. I, I tended to to be around because then we could just be very open and genuine with each other. People talk about genuine and authentic. Uh, and I'm not saying that you can't be in a white collar environment, but I think it's a lot harder because there's just too much posturing going on. So were you saying you were actually doing manufacturing jobs or were you doing HR in a manufacturing firm? So I know you did that. I was doing HR in manufacturing firms. Yeah. And that's because so. some of your stories are lovely about when you would come in and you were kind of told off for being talk, for talking to people on the floor, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, those are great. I don't know any of your... What are the, any anecdotes where you had the guys tear a strip off you where you weren't at your desk type thing? Uh, oh, uh, one company that I didn't put in the book, um, uh, I had to hire welders and I had never welded and I knew how to interview. And here's where I think HR misses the point when it comes from a business perspective. Uh, I was young and I was told to interview. So I did. 
And so I would get applications. I review the applications. It said, welder, I'd hire you. And we never hired any of the people I interviewed. So the owner of the company says, do you know how to weld? And I said, no, I have no idea. He says, for the next month, you're going to weld. So I went out with the men on the floor and they messed with me the first day. They scuffed my boots. They dropped my tools. Uh, they made me <laughs> weld with your hood up, which is dangerous, but they thought it'd be funny. So I burnt my eyes. Oh, they thought it was hilarious. Uh, but we got to learn each other and respect each other for the skills that they had. They showed me what to do. When I went back to interviewing welders, we hired every person I interviewed. Right. So you actually properly understood. So then I said, well, I need to do a stint in carpentry and I need to do a stint in paint and I need to do a stint on second shift. What's it worth to like on an evening shift versus a day shift? And the company allowed me to do all this hands-on stuff, a much more respect. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and I think that's missing. You know, uh, we, we don't value the person who opens the door or who greets you as, as a receptionist. And honestly, without them, companies don't work mm -hmm. or don't work as well as they could. And after that, we were, you know, fast friends and I was welcomed in all the places and they knew that I valued what they did so we could hire and retain and develop and all the good HR stuff that comes after it. But I think you have to respect the work that other people do first in order to be better at what you do. Definitely. And and I wonder, was there anything that you were very courageous in, in some of the other stories you talk about where well, it sounds like you were allowed to do that in that particular role or even encouraged to do that? But some of the roles, it was seen as alien that you would go and be part of the you know, floor and mixing with people. And, and you had to really courageously, even wasn't it one of them on your second or third day in the job? Um, yes. You were getting told off that sort of thing. Yeah. It, well, many companies are very traditional in their approach. And um, I am a very non-traditional person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm also very intentional. Um, so I had some experience under my belt and it just was natural for me and to be able to stand up to the CEO and say, you know, you, you've lost sight that the company is built with the people who are doing the job out there. It, just because you're a CEO, that's great. And thank you for being so you know, visionary and founding this company, but you've lost sight of this. Um, one of our roles as HR is to push against senior management, not to always agree just because they're senior management. Um, but I want to make him succeed. I wasn't doing it to be insubordinate. I was doing it to say, I need to change your perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it does take courage. Uh, to me, HR takes a lot of courage because every person you meet is different. Everybody has different life experiences, different backgrounds. And uh, you can't just be one flavor for everybody. So, you know, I'm willing to tussle and, you know, it's, it could be career threatening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, it never has been. Yeah. Um, Cause you had the right intent time, presumably, but you would have paid that price if you needed to, I'm, I'm guessing. I would have, I would have. And I think the, I respect what senior people do. And now that I'm a senior person myself, uh, I don't want to ever lose perspective, but, um, one of the companies I worked for, uh, where we had an eight-page coffee-making policy, which was awful. <laughs> uh, the guy, the CEO that I ch changed when I uh, wore casual clothes because it was allowed in the policy. When he interviewed me, he said, <laughs> so do you know engineering and architecture? And I said, no, I don't. And he says, well, why would I hire you? And I said, do you have people? <laughs> and he says, yeah. and I said, well, that's my job. 
I work with people. I said, I can learn engineering and architecture. That's easy. And he looked at me like, how dare you? I said, no, really. I, you're not hiring me to do that role. Yeah. So quit treating it. I, I don't disrespect what you do, but value what I do on the people side. And uh, he told my boss later, he says, I like that he pushed back because no one does. And uh, I think it's, it's necessary in our role. And that's an interesting point, isn't it? Where um, often HR sort of talk about oh, we should have more respect and more seat at the table type thing. But actually, you don't necessarily have to have that seat at the table to do that. You just have to have the courage and the, the, the sight, the foresight to actually make those points. And, and maybe the seat at the table comes next or maybe that's not relevant. It's more about being strong and, and aligned and on purpose. Yes, I think so. Um... I know some people who have seats at the table because of titles or roles or levels, and they're the most non-strategic people ever. So I don't think we need to have this constant aspiration to reach something that we think this is, you know, oh, if I reach this level, I've made it. I make it whatever level I'm at. Yeah. Uh, some of the stuff I'm working on for a new book okay. is, is um, leading where you are. And so in, some, in a department of one, I might, that's the top of the department. I don't replace anybody. <laughs> I'm it. Yeah. You still can lead. <laughs> so I think there should be more things that are attainable regardless of your role, regardless of your level, or if, if a specialty. If I'm an L&D professional, how do I lead as an L&D professional? If I'm a benefits person, how do I lead as a benefits person? Sure. If I'm a generalist, et cetera. Uh, it, this whole aspirational, I need to sit in this giant boardroom with a bunch of people that talk a bunch of fluff. No. You may well no. have less opportunity to lead there in fairness, because you're not out there <laughs> finding out what's really going on and understanding what needs to be done. Right. In your um, point though, when you say about being strategic and, and I think it may becomes more naturally to some people than others and being on purpose. And you've got an analogy about um, checkers versus chess. Uh, would you want to explain for the listeners what your view is of being on purpose or being strategic in HR? the challenge with it, my boss brought this up. I love him for it. He's probably the best boss I've ever had. Uh, most organizations are made up of checkers players. People are very good linear thinkers. Step one to two to three to four. And you need that. You, need, you can't have people just going all over. But strategic people will go one F, J, nine, three, seven, L and get to the same point. A strategic person and especially in HR, needs to look at all the aspects of people. So uh, Lucinda has an issue and Mike has an issue and they seem to be the same issue. But Lucinda is different than Mike. So you need to say, so how do I work with Lucinda for who she is? How do I work with Mike for how he is? And together it'll come together. Um, however, it's hard. I am a chess player and uh, I'm somebody who looks at all the different aspects of things. And, you know, to be a chess player in the midst of checkers players, A, first thing, don't devalue who they are and what they do. Because companies are built with the majority of people being very tactical, functional, and linear. They just are. And that's good. So how do you work within and flow within those people to speak their language, to put it in a framework that they go, oh, I get that. So to me, strategic is how do I make it comprehensible to you as well as thinking big picture? Um, so taking everyone to with you, really, isn't it, as yeah. well? It's, yeah. yeah. It has to make sense to others. It can't just be lofty thoughts that you put on a chart. 
because those don't go anywhere. Yeah, so it's, 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 re- it's all very real, isn't it? And, and purposeful. I, again, using your book, but that's unintentionally. But I guess that's exactly what it is. It's, it's you're knowing where you want to go and, and taking people with you in a purposeful way. And it's without ego as well there. It's about, um, you know, doing for the best of their, their benefit or the organization's benefit, I'm guessing, as well. Yes. I think the other piece that I wish HRP would see is very strategic is how you invest your time. So investing my time in people, uh, for instance, visiting my pizzeria. I was at a pizzeria this morning, early this morning. Uh, we have a team member who is uh, moving out of state and going to another state. And I just wanted to see her and make sure that she had everything in order to transition. So she had her benefits ready. I knew her new address. I got to thank her for all she did. And so I was there for an hour. Others will say, why were you there? That's not really work. That hour is better use of my time strategically because everybody in the pizzeria said, oh, he's here to see her. He's always here to see people. We love that he's here. And by developing those relationships, it's far more strategic than uh, developing large overarching programs. Because you're actually sending a message about the culture there, aren't you? But you're voting with your feet in terms of the fact that we actually do prioritize people and, and that's sending a message. Yes, absolutely. But it's, it's the exception. I, I, I don't know how to break it. I want to change it worldwide. <laughs> I think it is really hard because actually with technology and um, the busyness, lots of people feeling that they're very busy, it's much easier to feel like you're doing things when you're sitting behind a desk than it is necessarily being out with people. They feel like their email tray is filling up and stuff. So you do have to take a step back and think what's the most important thing. And I mean, you you also clearly prioritise um, external relationships. So your your network, the time you invest into um, SHRM, uh, your, your wider network, your blogging. I mean, those all look like jobs in themselves. I do wonder when you sleep, frankly. Um, <laughs> as I noticed, you'd done a song to Tom Petty and you do this weekly. So all of that extracurricular stuff. Well, how do you find, how do you prioritise that? And also, what what do you see? Why do you do it? Why do you see that as important? Uh, two things. Uh, one of the things I've noticed over time is um, people have different capacities. And uh, people who have large capacities, they just can't get enough. They just keep filling more and more. If they say it in a positive tone, like, I don't, I, I wish I could do more. Yes. Not that you can tell that's a capacity of a high capacity person. If they have their plate, if they always say, oh, my plate's so full, Ugh, and it's just awful, they're over capacity. Yeah. And but they may be doing less than, than the other person. It's that whole give, right. give a busy person more to do type thing, isn't it? Correct. And uh, I've always believed, and, and I was raised this way, with my, my mom and dad are high capacity people. I mean, crazy high capacity people. <laughs> so they modeled it for my brother and I. And so we, we knew nothing other than that. And so it was how I used my time, not that I didn't have enough time. I, I don't think I do enough. <laughs> um, the people like talking to you today makes sense to me. It's just, it's natural. It fills my bucket. It, it, it helps fill a personal need. And it also makes sure that I can get a message to someone who can take it to someone else. Um, I don't do it for me. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for like your that. time on it because I know oh. you've been really hectic over the last few weeks as well. So it's very good of you. 
but um, there are times where you have to go, okay, I'm going to shut this portion off in order to focus on this. Uh, I don't believe in time management. I believe in more of a continuum thought. Hey, what's happening today? Because in, our reality is built on interruptions. It's not built on a set schedule. Everybody wants to do these to-do lists and the seven things. And then five minutes in, the first three can't get done because your life changed for some very valid reason. So I'd rather say, here's the framework I know I need to get to. And in the middle of it, I'm going to do these other things and just flow with it a little more. But I'm comfortable with it. And a lot of people aren't. Um, it probably fits with being a bit of a checkers thinker as well, because if you are a linear thinker, it's quite hard to squeeze things in here and around, whereas you probably get synergies in, in working this way. Yes. I, I mean, I have a to-do list and it's all red because it's all overdue. And then when I knock it out, I'm like, hey, I got one knocked out. Everybody else like, I knocked on 10 things. My wife is a very much a checkers player. And thank goodness she is. Uh, but she'll make lists and lists and lists. And it gives her great pleasure to knock things off. I, I, I write things on the bottom of my list to say I've done it. <laughs> I did that right. I did it to the list. <laughs> uh, you know, and my, my thing is what list? I yeah. just don't, you know, uh, it, to me, it feels confining. But in the past, I would make fun of it. Now I understand that that gives her the same pleasure as my not having a list is as um, fulfilling. So, and also that some of, a lot of this is very f- people. I, I, I think you, you must, you're very people centric. I, I imagine you're quite values driven. I imagine in, in Myers-Briggs, you must be a, an F, whatever the rest of oh. your thing is. You're a very a, a, a strong F in terms of that side of things. Um, and maybe that kind of gives a, an extra purpose. You can be driven by that to an extent. Absolutely. In terms of getting there. Um, one of the other things, which I think we've touched on before um, when we've met, which really interests me is, um, the level of connection and sincerity you're able to bring to social media, and actually, and and I, you know, I see the the, the real. It really is a good community, particularly in the HR and L and D space, um, and across the pond, um, which is great. And I think that's quite unusual. You're one of the few people I would see that really is um, connecting and interacting with people. And obviously, you came over for that tweet up earlier in the year and met people you'd been talking to for years and have got real strong friendships with, which was just fantastic to see. I mean, what's your take on that? How do you do that? And oh, I've got a follow-up question, but yeah, I'll let you speak about that first. Sorry. I, I think uh, to me, uh, social media uh, technology is just a different way to converse. Uh, people have always valued conversation and taking time to learn about each other. And I'm not someone who comes to meet you to fix you. I'm not someone that, can meet, that comes and says, well, this is how I feel. And if you don't feel that way, I won't talk to you. I'd rather meet you for who you are and learn who you are. I have very, very many people in my circle that don't think like me at all, but I learned so much from them. And I want to be available because I don't think there's a lot of people who believe in other people. And I, I want to be careful because it doesn't, I don't want it to sound arrogant. The world is missing encouragement every day and someone needs to encourage and it needs to be authentic and genuine, although I think some people make that really new agey. Yeah. I think you see it through their behavior. So when you see someone's behavior and, you know, I see, boy, he says he's positive, but I see it here. He says he's connected, but I see it here. Then I'm all in. The, uh, I, I get jazzed, geeked when I talk to people because when I see your name pop up, I go, oh, it's Lucinda. 
and and even though I haven't met thousands of people, we're as connected as if I saw you having coffee across from me. But I think that you've made it easier to connect because of your, the fact you'll really kind of reach out. And I wonder sometimes if that's a cultural thing, whether uh, we sort of touch on, do you, do you see a difference in the networking style of the Brits compared to your, your colleagues in America? Yes, I think, uh, well, let me say the positive side, because when I came over and saw everybody, is it was as if we had known each other for a long time. And uh, it's astonishing to us. We're like, oh, you are really who you are. Uh, years ago, I went to HR Evolution in Atlanta and several people that I had met on social media, first time we had met in person, and the comment came up of, you are the same in person as you are online. And my challenge back to them was, why wouldn't I be? And they said, well, you don't have to be. I said, well, I don't even understand what that means. And there are people that have personas, and I get concerned about that. You know, I have a work face. I have a life face. I have a, a football face. I have a this face. You can't sustain it. Um, I, I don't believe in being disingenuous. I just yeah. don't get it. Uh, the other thing is I'm truly interested in other people. I, I mean, I'm curious. Uh, I want to see, you know, you like art. What kind of art do you like? Well, I like abstract art. Oh, well, I, okay, tell me about that. Instead of saying, I don't like that, ah, you know. Um, so you're very open and very curious and interested in everything. Right. Yeah. Now, from the, in the UK, what I find is people are cautious and reserved, and that's okay. I think I, I we would worry. I don't think, I don't know if there's room, for, well, I think we would be possibly a bit suspicious about a personality like yourself who goes, yeah, follow this person, that person, and and being encouraging on a daily basis. I think we I, 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 I love it, but I think it's easier um, to accept from coming from someone like you, yourself, who's an American, and genuinely, it, it does. We've, we've met you. We can see how you consistently interact like that, and it, it's sincere. Um, sure. I'm just not sure whether we'd be able to do that. We need to find well, the equivalent over here. Well, oh, I'm going to try and encourage someone myself tomorrow. I uh, just went to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is in the south of the States, and something that fascinated me and made me feel less was every person, Lucinda, every single person I saw said hello, made eye contact and asked me how I was doing and stood and waited and asked how it was. So even in the States, here I am going to the South going, man, this is how I want to greet people. I come back to Ohio, which I think is very welcoming. Okay. And we're not even close. You know, people avoid eye contact. They rush by you. They're you know, more intent on doing something else. We're in Baton Rouge. It's like, well, that's how we do a day. Our, our day starts with greeting everybody. Uh, I thought that was really encouraging. And when I was in the UK, I felt so welcome. Um, and it was just fun to meet friends. And I, and I wouldn't come over to try and change. I'd come over to be myself. And then if we connect, great. If we don't, well, it's nice to know you. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that it's interesting. It's the other way around, north-south. Well, you did go to the north, didn't you, in the UK? In terms of the reserve, we're um, more friendly. If you, I'm from the north originally, and if you walk down the street there, people will say hello to you and ask you the time of day. Whereas, um, you know, in, in more cities in London like that, they might think you well, think you're bonkers if you say hello to them at the bus stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what do you want? What's going yeah. on? <laughs> greeting you today. <laughs> but the social media thing, actually, maybe there's just a, a bit of a culture. I say on Twitter, I've seen 
I'm, I've only been more recently involved in it. And I think it is, there's quite a nice positive in the HR community. And, and I guess maybe to people out there who are listening, who aren't involved in it, I'd say in, get engaged in it because there's, there's a, a very nice goodwill that I see out there and, and a positivity and a sharing, um, which you wouldn't necessarily expect from something that could be so anonymous. Right. And I think it, you can be anonymous. And I also think you can be vile and awful. Yes. Um, and, and there's it, it, it's what you choose to focus on. Uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with being critical. There's nothing wrong with being challenging. But just to be awful and, you know, and to drag people down, I, I don't see the value in that. Uh, and when I've come across friends who do that, I reach out. I'll call them. I'll email them. I'll find some way to go, what's happening? Yeah. What's going on? Because you don't know. Uh, we keep forgetting that we have lives. You know, we think that the 280 characters now, I think it is on Twitter, I know everything about Steve. You know very little about me. Yeah. You know, we, we make that big jump. I would rather take the time to invest in you. The more I know about you, the more we can have a better, more meaningful relationship. But if it's 280 characters, then let's make that positive. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's out there for everybody to see as well, isn't it? True. In terms of- in terms of your um, collaboration, so you've built networks and, and collaboration, and I suppose as I, I won't take too much more of your time up, Steve. But in terms of advice to people who want to to build a strong network outside of the people that they work with, and to broaden that, um, what do you think's been most useful, or what are your top tips for people in terms of of building those relationships? I, I think there's a couple of things. The first thing is follow through. If I'm going to say I do something, do it. Yeah. So same. if I say I'm going to have a podcast with you, we set time aside to do that. You don't just keep making you know, more and more promises that you can't fulfill. When you follow through, you, show, you exhibit accountability instead of saying, be accountable. I, I hate these you know, you know, big threats. Ah, do this. And it's like I'm accountable because of my behavior. The second thing is connect with people with purpose. If there are people that are fringe people and just takers, don't tell them, hey, this isn't working out. Uh, we, we can't be connected. Be connected with those that you really want to, you'd be willing to sit down and have a cup of tea with. Yeah. You know, uh, or, or a beer or whatever it is. Just sit down and say, I would, I would, if I had a choice, I would spend time with that person. That's who I connect with. Now, I'm different. I, if I don't connect with you, I feel I'm losing out. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm not a good example. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, The Tipping Point, writes about connectors. And there's a very, very small percentage of people. And I'm one of those people. I have to. I can't help myself. But It's almost would, a need that you're yeah, satisfying. Yes. I wouldn't model how I connect for others. I, I spoke once on networking at an event. And a person came up to me afterwards. He says, I, I'm very uncomfortable with a large group of people. And I said, great. I said, what's, what's comfortable for you then? And he says, if I had seven close people, I would be good. And I said, that's wonderful. Then do that. Right now you have none. Get seven. Mm. I said, but here's what you need to understand. Each of those seven have seven or 10 or 15. So in connecting with seven, you're connecting with honestly hundreds to thousands of people. You just don't see it. Again, it's a capacity issue. Mm-hmm. If you are good with seven, then kill that seven. Just be all over it. 
If you're comfortable with thousands, then own that and be in that community. Don't just gather together. Um, you know, even though I have crazy, stupid numbers all over this social media thing, you know, I bet you I could tell you several thousand of them by name and what yeah. they do and who they are and where they are. But that's an exception. Yeah. Um, you know, like but you, you said, don't have a, to do that, but start with something small. I think you said again in your book, you say, you know, connect with two or three people a week on LinkedIn or reach out. Because I, I do see something like LinkedIn as being actually this, this quite a small, a bit your 80-20 rule. There's you know still quite a small population of people who are connecting. And the interesting thing is for me, I didn't really use LinkedIn when I was an internal pr- practitioner. And I think I missed out on it. You end up being in a bit of a vacuum in a large organisation. You're not necessarily bringing fresh ideas in enough. Um, so that's why I think using the communities, yeah, it, well, I mean, it wasn't so active in back in 2009, there was less, it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago, but it wasn't, you know, Twitter and stuff was only just starting out, but, um, we're missing an opportunity possibly by, by not using the tools at our fingertips to, to get to know each other more Agreed. across all aspects. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. So I got any, any fine, I suppose one other thing I'd say then is, is before we wrap up is if you were giving advice to your younger self, and I don't normally ask this question, but I know that you've, um, you know, you've had loads of experience. And, and also you were saying when you started out in HR, it was still personnel. So the role has changed. So someone coming into it right now, what would you say, what, what would your advice be? The first advice would be um, have courage in what you do, in your convictions, in your values, in your approach. And be very intentional with people going in. Get to know who they are and what they do and how they add value to the company. For years, I processed work just like everybody else. And then I realized how frustrated I was because something just seemed to be missing. And once I broke over that barrier and started learning the wonderful people that did the work in my organizations, it completely changed how I approached it. And it was more natural for me. I was like, oh, I'm with the people again. This is so good. But my younger self was not as courageous. I kind of fell in line. I bought the idea that I had to conform. Uh, I did my best to make sure people were in line instead of allowing the people to perform. Uh, I think we need to open the doors so that people can do their best both in HR and in any role in organizations, the more we open doors for them, you'll see the amazing people that they are. And we'll spend less time on all the negative stuff. Uh, It just makes for a better work environment. It makes for a better daily activity. It's just, it's better. Yeah, I was just thinking, when you finish a day at work, when you've had a good day or a bad day, it's really down to the people and the interactions that you've had. It's not down to whether you got your to-do list done generally, is it? It's actually those relationships that were there or otherwise. Right, right. That's what it's all about. So it's all about relationships. So, Steve, I need to let you get on with the rest of your Friday because you've still got a number of hours to go. And I think the phone's ringing in the background, probably meetings to attend, I'm sure. It is. Thank you so much for um, spending the time with me today on Friday and, and really massively appreciate you c- contributing to the HR Uprising. I know that we'll put all of your connection and, and your links there. You're very easy to get hold of. And, and obviously you say, meet with you, um, link in with you on Twitter, follow you on Twitter, follow back, all that sort of thing. Get involved and, and um, let's grow the community further. Sounds great. Listen, it is great to talk to you and to see you again. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers. Have a great Friday. Bye-bye. Bye. 
So I'm really delighted to have had the opportunity to talk to Steve Brown. He's such a lovely chap on the HR Uprising this week. And I wanted to say thanks to everyone who has supported us over the last 25 weeks, which feels like a massive milestone. Please do feel free to get in touch because in December, we're going to be running a series of 12 interviews in line with the 12 um, steps of Christmas, if you like, or the 12 days of Christmas, where we want to be talking to regular HR professionals about what it is that they do and we can learn from each other. So we're going to do a little series there and we'll be looking for participants. If you'd like to join the HR Uprising LinkedIn group, do please connect there. Uh, link in with me on uh, LinkedIn, on Twitter. Just join in. It would be lovely to be connected. Let's follow Steve's lead and do more of the same. And also, if you've been enjoying these podcasts, I really appreciate it if you can give us um, a rating on Amazon, on Amazon, sorry, on Apple, and that would be very, very much appreciated as well. So thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.